0: Okay, part two of OB assessment, start off with some questions. The nurse is assessing a client of 28 weeks gestation. Where should the fundus be palpated? About 28 centimeters above the pubis symphysis. The nurse recognizes what as probable signs of pregnancy. So the probable signs of pregnancy are Chadwick sign, Gaudel sign, ballotment, Braxton Hicks contractions, and uterine enlargement. The client is pregnant with twins. She has a history of a 5-year-old delivered at 38 weeks and no abortions or fetal demises. What is her GTPAL? So that's pregnant with twins, history of a 5-year-old delivered at 38 weeks, no abortions or fetal demises. Her GTPAL is g2 t1 p0 a0 l1 we'll cover that more in a little bit um, next question what is the average expected weight gain during pregnancy 25 to 35 pounds okay so um, gtpal stands for gravita term preterm abortions and living so gravida, the g is the number of pregnancies, the total number of pregnancies, including the one that the patient is there for. T is how many patients were born at term, and at term is 37 weeks, not 36 weeks and six days, not 36 weeks and five days, it's over 37 weeks. Preterm is anything before 37 weeks. Abortions um, stands for abortions like a planned event or miscarriage or anything before 20 weeks Um, and then living the last part of GTPAL is how many number of current living children does this patient have let's go back over that question so a client pregnant with twins has a history of a five-year-old delivered at 38 weeks no abortions or fetal demises so this is their second pregnancy doesn't matter that she's pregnant with twins that she's carrying two. This is her second pregnancy. So G2, because she has a history of a five-year-old delivered at 38 weeks, she has no preterm and no abortions and no fetal demises. So that's how we get the G2, T1, P0, A0, L1. And hopefully everything goes well, and she has in L3 after that. Okay, so um, presumptive signs of pregnancy. So these are exactly what it means, presumptive. They don't really know and they're not really sure, but they show up stating that they've had amenorrhea, nausea, vomiting, increase in breast size or feeling of fullness, urinary frequency, and quickening is a presumptive sign. Could maybe they just had a spicy meal and they're feeling a lot of rumbling down there. But remember, quickening is a maternal perception of fetal movement. So she could just feel the rumbly tummy and think she's pregnant. You never know. The probable signs of pregnancy are uterine enlargement, Hagar's rule, which is a softening of the lower, lower uterine segment, Gaudel's and Chadwick sign. Remember, we talked about those in the last one. Blotment, we also talked about in the last uh, podcast review. Um, Blotment was the rebounding of the fetus against the fingers of the practitioner on a physical exam. Um, Braxton Hicks contractions are also a probable sign of pregnancy, and so these are just irregular and painless contractions. Another probable sign of pregnancy is a positive off-the-shelf pregnancy test, and so these uh, these tests detect HCG, so human chorionic gonadotropin, which is the earliest biomarker or biochemical marker of pregnancy. And then the last probable sign of pregnancy is striae gravidarum or stretch marks. So presumptive signs, amenorrhea, nausea, vomiting, increase in breast size or fullness, urinary frequency and quickening. So those are presumptive. The probable signs of pregnancy are uterine enlargement, Hagar's roll, Chadwick's and Godel's sign, blotment, Braxton Hicks contractions, positive off-the-shelf pregnancy test, and stretch marks. So there are only three things that are positive signs of pregnancy. Um, These are all done in the office. And so those are fetal heart rate detected by an electronic device. So those electronic devices can be a Doppler at 10 to 12 weeks or a fetoscope at 20 weeks. So that's the first one. So fetal heart rate detected by an electronic device. The second positive sign of pregnancy, not in any order, but this is just how we have them down. Um, Active fetal movements palpated by an examiner. And then the last positive sign of pregnancy is an outline of the fetus on a radiograph or ultrasonography. So the only three positive signs of pregnancy are fetal heart rate detected by an electronic device, active fetal movements palpated by the examiner, or an outline of a fetus on a radiograph or ultrasonography. Like we asked in the beginning um, about fundal height, So during the second and third trimester, the height in centimeters should be about equal to the fetal age in weeks. So at about 20 weeks, it should be palpated at the level of the umbilicus, and around 36 weeks, the uterus should be palpated right at about the xiphoid process. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about um, risk factors. In the adolescent pregnancy, The main risk factors included in this are changing sexual behaviors, poverty, lack and lack of knowledge. And the major concerns for an adolescent pregnancy are poor nutritional status, emotional and behavioral difficulties, increased risk of stillbirth, and then um, the key things to remember for NCLEX are going to be for adolescent pregnancies, low birth weight and prolonged labor Um, women especially all women should take uh, prenatal vitamins but especially in this age group they need to take folic acid supplements to prevent neural tube deficits and orofacial clefts in the fetus and then a geriatric pregnancy is for any any woman greater than 35 years old is automatically uh, termed a geriatric pregnancy and their increased risks of perinatal outcomes, and these women need monitoring. So, in the need for monitoring, let's also talk about STDs. So, TORCH is the acronym that stands for Toxoplasmosis, Other, Rubella, Cytomegalov- Cytomegalovirus, and HSV. So, TORCH, T for Toxoplasmosis. This comes from cat feces, raw, and raw beef, and it can lead to developmental abnormalities. O in TORCH is for other. This includes gonorrhea, syphilis, varicella, hepatitis B, and HIV. So the main thing that NCLEX review books, the, many of them seem to hit on, was HIV. So HIV is transmitted through blood and bodily fluid, which is, includes breast milk and women who are known to be HIV positive need to have perinatal administration of zidovidine to decrease the risk of transmission to the fetus. R stands for of TORCH stands for rubella. Rubella is a virus and can cause heart disease, growth retardation, and cataracts. C stands for cytomegalovirus. So As this name would indicate, it is a virus and can lead to microcephaly, blindness, and retardation in the developing fetus. H in TORCH stands for HSV. Women who have herpes simplex need to adhere to an antiviral medication, and cesarean birth is strongly recommended, especially if lesions are visible. But... Um, these women need to be on antire- or any viral medication throughout pregnancy, and cesarean is most commonly indicated. Okay, so other issues that can come up. So we talked about STDs and torch, toxoplasmosis, other rubella, cytomegalovirus, and HSV, and why we want to look out for those. We also want to counsel women um, to not drink in pregnancy. So alcohol is the leading preventable cause of mental retardation, low birth weight, small head circumference, underdeveloped cheekbones, and poor ability to suck and feed in the infant. So tobacco in pregnancy, tobacco can lead to low birth weight and higher incidences of birth defects, including stillbirth. More screening for the pregnant mother. So we want to know the blood type of the mother so that way we can know whether or not we need to give rogam. Rogam is given when there's an RH mismatch between the mother and the fetus. And so Rogam is given at 28 weeks to prevent permanent antibodies for future pregnancies. And then it's also given 72 hours after birth. Alpha-fetal protein screening. Uh, So this screening is used to detect spina bifida and Down syndrome, though they're commonly false positives. So this is drawn between 16 and 18 weeks gestation. If there's an abnormal result, a second test will be drawn. But So this is done through an amniocentesis, which you need to get the consent of the mother before performing just because of the risks that are involved. So let's talk a little bit about amniocentesis. Um, It's best between 15 and 20 weeks, and this test is done for genetic disorders, metabolic defects, and also to assess fetal lung maturity. So the main risks that come with an amnio are hemorrhage, infection, abrupto placenta, premature rupture of membranes, and In less than 20 weeks, the client should have a full bladder to support the uterus. So a common NCLEX question that I've seen is what is one thing you want to educate the patient about before they have an amnio, and that's to not pee before the test. Um, You want to obtain a fetal heart rate before and then 15 minutes after um, the amnio is complete. You want to position the client in the supine position during the procedure and on the left lateral recumbent position to recover. Okay, so talking about birth, there are different ways to describe the fetus. So you can talk about the fetal position, the lot, and the lie. So the fetal position is how the baby is oriented in the uterus. So you're going to say what way the fetus's positioning, either they're facing the mother's right or left pelvis, the presenting part, whether that's the occiput, the mentum, or the scapula, and also the location. Is it facing anterior, posterior, or is it in the transverse lie? Right occiput anterior is ideal for vaginal birth. So in NCLEX, when they ask you, Where do you want the baby? You want it ROA, facing the mother's right side of the pelvis with its occiput anterior. The fetal lie uh, is how the fetus is positioned in the mother. So there can be like a longitudinal, which will be a vertex presentation, so the top of the head. Or it can be a longitudinal in a breech position, which has either the butt or the leg first. The transverse position will be, um, you'll see one of the scapula. So the four P's of labor are the powers, the passageway, the passenger, and the psyche. So the powers first, there are two forces. You have your primary and your secondary forces. So the primary powers of um, labor and birth are... The primary forces, which are uterine contractions, and then the secondary forces that help expel the child. So, those are the abdominal and pelvic muscles, which will kind of complete the delivery of the baby. So, those are the powers. You have your primary and secondary forces the passageway, which is the vagina, the passenger, which is the fetus, the membranes, and the placenta, and then the psyche which just encompasses the mother's complete emotional structure leading up to the delivery and immediately following. So the four Ps of labor are powers, passageway, passenger, and psyche. So how we talk about uh, the mother's readiness for delivery is dilation and effacement as well as stages of labor. So the dilation is expressed in centimeters. Full dilation is 10 centimeters and this also marks the end of the first stage of labor. Effacement is the shortening and the thinning of the cervix. So this can go from zero to 100%. Ideally, when the mother's ready to give birth, she'll be fully dilated at 10 centimeters and 100% effaced. So the stages of labor, so the first stage of labor is when the mother is or 10 centimeters dilated. The second stage of labor is 10 centimeters to the delivery of the baby. The third stage of labor is a birth through complete delivery, and then the fourth stage is the first one to four hours after birth. At this point, the fundus should be at the level of the umbilicus, the baby will be skin-to-skin and breastfeeding, and you'll also have the delivery of the placenta. So hopefully the delivery of the placenta should come within the first half an hour. So uh, those are the descriptors of the birthing process, the dilation, effacement, and stages of labor. So true labor is marked by regular contractions that gradually come closer together, contractions that increase in duration, frequency, and intensity. And the discomfort for the mother begins in the back and it radiates to the abdomen. Um, Intensity increases with walking, cervical dilation and effacement are progressive, and contraction does not decrease with rest or a warm bath. So you can di- you can differentiate between true labor and false labor if you just know what true labor is. So regular contractions that come closer together increase in duration, frequency, and intensity, pain that radiates from the back to the abdomen, and gets worse with walking. So the cardinal movements of labor go in this process. Engage, descent, flex, and internally rotate Extension, once the head is out of the vagina, externally rotate, and expulsion, which means the rest of the baby comes out. So the baby's gonna engage, uh, kind of flex, all the limbs are gonna kind of come together as it descends through the vaginal canal. It's going to flex and internally rotate. Once the head is out of the vagina, the baby's gonna extend the neck and externally rotate. And then after the external rotation you will come the expulsion of the baby. So after the baby is born, you're gonna monitor the lochia and you're gonna count the number of pads. Anytime you have more than one pad in 15 minutes, this could be an emergency and you wanna monitor the uterus to make sure it's firm and midline and contracted otherwise you could have a code white on your hands. So the way you describe lochia is rubra, serosa, and alba. So from delivery to about day three, the lochia will be rubra. It'll be dark red and should end around the third day, hopefully sooner. Serosa is a brownish pink and this can go for four to ten days And then ALBA is white discharge that can go up to two weeks. So you just want to monitor, especially after the lady delivers her baby, that you're not exceeding one pad every 15 minutes. Otherwise, you better massage that fundus. Before the whole birthing process um, happens, you're going to be monitoring the fetus with a fetal heart rate monitor. Um, if Brady or tacky should occur, change the mother's position, administer O2, and assess the mother's vitals. Better make sure that you have two good IVs in either arm just in case you need to start getting boluses. So, with fetal heart rate monitoring, accelerations are good. You want 15 beats per minute above baseline for 15 seconds. Early decelerations are normal this means that the uterus is contracting but you still want to make sure that the fetal heart rate is greater than 100. Late D-cells occur after the beginning of the contraction and indicate a decrease in blood flow to the fetus. These are bad. You want to watch out for these. Variable decelerations equal emergency. You need to notify the healthcare provider immediately, put the mother on O2, reposition, and it's probably because she's on an oxydrip. So turn off the oxytocin. You may need to order, the physician may order an amnioinfusion, influ- which will just be normal saline, because she may have had a premature rupture of membranes, and she could be dry. Um, okay, so we'll go over each of those again. Accelerations are good. You want 15 beats per minute for 15 seconds above their baseline heart rate. Accelerations on fetal heart rate monitoring are good. Remember this for NCLEX. Early D-cells are normal. They happen with the contraction, but you wanna make sure the fetal heart rate is greater than 100. Late D-cells, bad. They indicate a decrease in placental blood flow to the fetus, so maybe reposition the mother. Variable D-cells, always bad, always very bad. Notify the healthcare provider, O2 to mom, reposition, DC the oxytocin, get ready for some action. Okay, so we talked a little bit about problems with labor with the variable decel, so let's talk a little bit more about the rest of them. So basically, monitoring fetal heart rate for distress, indicated by late decelerations. You're monitoring the mother for shock. If this happens, you're gonna lower the head of the bed and put her in the left lateral recumbent position. So you wanna remember that the fetal heart rate monitor is talking about the circulation to the fetus. You want to make sure you have a euvolemic mother and you've got to give oxygen for both. Give O2 to the mom you're going to get better oxygenation to the fetus. The other thing you want to be mindful of is infections to the fetus and the mother. So with infections let's talk talk about premature rupture of membranes. So premature rupture of membrane Is before term an increased risk for infection. So what you're going to do is you're going to assess. Nurses assess. (laughs) So you're going to assess the color, amount, odor, and vital signs on the mother should you happen to witness a premature rupture of membrane. You're going to monitor temperature because increased temperature means she might have an infection. You're going to monitor the fetal heart rate. Tachycardia may mean infection. The interventions are, you're going to avoid vaginal exams, you're going to monitor the maternal slash fetus status, and you're going to administer whatever antibiotics are prescribed by the provider. Another problem is a prolapsed umbilical cord. For this, you need to assess, do you see a cord, is the fetal heart rate regular, is it irregular, is it slow, do you have a monitor on there? There should probably be a fetal heart rate monitor. So the interventions for a prolapsed cord is you're going to elevate the presenting part to relieve pressure on the cord. You're going to place the mother in a lateral knee-to-chest position, and you're going to get a fetal heart rate monitor on there. Pressure on the cord can lead to a hypoxic event in the child. You're going to administer high-flow O2, and you're going to prepare to start IV fluids and get ready for an immediate birth. Abruptoplacente is dark red vaginal bleeding. There's gonna be uterine pain, tenderness, and rigidity. You're also gonna see signs of fetal distress on your heart rate monitor. The interventions for abrupto placenta are maintain bed rest, IV fluids. Maybe you're gonna need to give blood. You're gonna have them in a lateral position with the head of the bed flat, so that way you can increase the venous return. Placenta previa, on the other hand, is bright red, painless, vaginal bleeding. The uterus is soft, non-tender, and relaxed. The interventions for placenta previa are you're going to avoid digital stimulation and maintain bed rest, and you're also going to treat the patient for shock should they be symptomatic. Fetal distress is a heart rate less than 110 or greater than 160. You may also see meconium-stained amniotic fluid, fetal hyperactivity, and late D-cells on the fetal heart rate monitor. The interventions for fetal distress include turning the mother on her lateral position, high-flow O2, DC the oxytocin if it's infusing, and get ready for an emergent C section. So the medications used in OB are pretty broad, so we'll start with the tocolytics. So if you're giving a tocolytic, you're going to place the mother on her side to increase the placental perfusion, and you're going to give her O2. You're going to monitor the maternal vitals, fetal status, and labor status. The tocolytics that can be used um, include indomethacin, magsulfate, nifedipine, and terbutaline. So magsulfate is magnesium sulfate, which is a CNS depressant, will, which will lead to smooth muscle dilation. You're going to monitor for toxicity, and these include depressed, reflexes, weakness, and should you see a respiratory rate less than 12, you're going to monitor or you're going to notify the healthcare provider. The antidote for magnesium sulfate is calcium gluconate. When surfactant agents are indicated, you're gonna give beta or dexamethasone. These accelerate fetal lung maturity in a preterm infant, and it's usually given between 28 and 32 weeks. So because you're giving the mother a steroid, you need to monitor her for infections, changes in white blood cell counts, and also her blood glucose. Because you're giving a steroid, need to monitor the blood glucose. Prostaglandins are inserts, vaginal inserts, that are used to ripen the cervix and stimulate uterine contractions. The most common ones given or that will be seen on NCLEX are mesoprostol and dinoprostone. The side effects of these, you have to think about it, it's a vaginal insert so you're probably going to see something in that area. The main side effect is cramping followed by nausea, vomiting, flushing, and hypotension. So before you give mesoprostol or dinoprostone, you want to have the client void before administration and then stay supine for 30 to 60 minutes. So uterine stimulants when you need to induce labor include oxytocin and pitocin. So these stimulate smooth muscle of the uterus to contract. So you need to monitor the maternal and fetal heart rate every 15 minutes. A hyper If you see a hypertonic reaction, you need to stop the pitocin, turn the client on the side, and notify the healthcare provider in that order for NCLEX. Stop the pit, turn them on the side, notify the healthcare provider. For the postpartum hemorrhage, the treatments include ergot alkaloids, so these are Gonovine ending, G O N O V I N E. If you see that, you're going to monitor the blood pressure because this can lead to a hypertensive crisis due to vasospasm. Oxytocin and carboprost are the other two that are given for postpartum hemorrhage. Oxytocin is just going to lead to the uterine contraction, which should slow down the bleeding, and carboprost is contraindicated with clients with asthma. That's what NCLEX wants you to know. Other meds that are given are ROGAM. So this is an anti-RH given at 28 weeks and then 72 hours after delivery to prevent isoimmunization for RH negative mothers. So that's if you have a RH negative mother who has an RH positive child, there's a traumatic delivery, um, she's exposed to the RH positive factor and then creates antibodies for it in the future. So Rogam is used to prevent the production of those antibodies, which will lead to termination of any RH fetus that happens in a subsequent pregnancy. Um, and then the last thing that's given, as far as NCLEX wants you to know really, is vitamin K. So this is necessary. Uh, vitamin K is a necessary cofactor For clotting, and the reason that you give it for all newborns is that their immature livers aren't really producing it. The only thing that you want to watch out for is hyperbilirubinemia in the child. So that's what you're going to be monitoring. Um, I think that about wraps it up. We've covered everything else. And so, some questions. The nurse is assessing a client of 28 weeks gestation. Where should the fundus be palpated? So remember, after 20 weeks, it's about each week equals the centimeter above the pubis symphysis. So 28 centimeters above the pubis symphysis for a client, 28 weeks gestation. Pretty easy. The nurse recognizes what as a probable sign of pregnancy? There's a big list of them, so just see what you can get. Chadwick sign, Gaudel sign, ballotment, Braxton-Hicks contractions, uterine enlargement, and a positive off-the-shelf pregnancy test. Okay, so GTPAL. So you have a client who's pregnant with twins. She has a history of a 5-year-old delivered at 38 weeks, and no abortions or fetal demise. What is her GTPAL? So a client pregnant with twins, history of a five-year-old delivered at 38 weeks, no abortions or fetal demises. This is her second pregnancy, so she's G2. She has one term baby born at 38 weeks, who is five years old, so that's t one living one she has no abortions or preterm births so her gtpal is g2 t1 p0 a0 l1 and then what is the average expected weight gain during pregnancy 25 pounds all right that about sums it up uh good long review and good luck